0: Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode The murder of Thora Chamberlain. because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band, and now the company jumps when he plays reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle bar of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot, a toot. September 2nd, 1945. World War II was over. A time for celebration and rejoicing except in the small town of Campbell, California. Like most small towns at the time, the folks were happy that the war was over and life was slowly returning to normal. That is, tragically, except for one poor family in Campbell. It was Friday night, November 2nd. The high school was the site of a fall tradition, an interschool football game. Thora Chamberlain, just shy of her 15th birthday, was supposed to be at the game with her friends. But she didn't make it, and she never came home. Welcome a returning guest to Murder Most Foul, Rod Cackley, as he recounts the twisted tale of the murder of Thora Chamberlain.
1: Thanks, Jim. Nice to
0: be back. So, Rod, take us back and set the scene for us.
1: Now, this begins September 21st, 1945, and we're talking about the town of Campbell, California. Campbell, California is a small agricultural town, or it was until the war starts. And then, because it's in California for the Pacific Theater, it becomes a staging ground, if you will, for soldiers, Marines, and uh, Navy personnel going overseas. In 1945, it becomes a base for everyone coming back home. So the the town just grows, like, incredibly, maybe five times as big as it was. There are service people all over. Campbell, California, is about to be swamped by military people coming back from overseas, wondering how they're going to begin their lives all over again. Okay, now, one of these guys... I've named John Cooper. Now, I know his last name was Cooper, and I gave him the first name of John. And uh, he is a a petty officer, a naval petty officer. He was stationed in London and then Ireland, but now he's back. His footlocker with all of his clothing has disappeared. It's just gone. He doesn't know what's happened to it. He's telling his friends what happened to my footlocker. You know, he obviously suspects them. They're guiltless. Somebody has taken his footlocker with all of his clothing in it. And it's not a uniform that was in the footlocker. He would never do that. This is more a recreational, casual clothing that the service people were given. Uh, It's a white Londonderry, Ireland Navy Uh, T-shirt. His medals were pinned to it, so his medals are gone. And also a pair of slate gray trousers that the Navy issued him. Again, this is for casual, recreational wear. So you're in a casual uniform, so to speak. In our next scene, in the second chapter, there happens to be a guy, and guess what he's wearing? A white T-shirt with the words Londonderry, Ireland on it. He's wearing also some medals on that shirt, and he's wearing slate gray trousers. Navy-issued slate gray trousers. So, you know, you don't have to be a true crime aficionado to figure this one out. Now, he's in a bar, a restaurant, rather, called the Cozy Café. And he's playing a pinball game, and he will not stop playing it. It's called the Big Broadcast. It was a real hot pinball machine back in the day. And he won't let anybody play it. He's eating hamburgers, fries, and a chocolate shake. Okay, so that's the scene. This is a lunch hour. There's early lunch hour. And all of a sudden, it becomes late lunch hour. What's he waiting for? We don't know. But the waitress he's talking to, Sally, talks to the boss, Louis, And she's kind of saying, we need to move this guy. we got to turn this table, so to speak, like they say in the restaurant biz. Well, Lewis and Sally go back to the table, and Sally's talking to him, and, you know, her husband died in the war. So that gives them something to talk about. Obviously, this is, you know, a, a connection that everybody's making in Campbell, California, back in those days, in 1945. Well, they look up, and all of a sudden, this guy's gone, And also a blue Plymouth sedan that was parked out in front of the restaurant is gone, too. So it would seem that this guy was driving the Plymouth blue sedan. He drove away and took off. 2.35 in the afternoon, we've got a couple of elementary school girls, Carol Ann and Yvonne Rapp, seven and eight years old, respectively. They're walking home from Campbell Grammar School. Guy pulls up in a blue Plymouth sedan. He tries to talk these little girls into his car. Carol Ann realizes that something's wrong, and she grabs Yvonne, and they run away. That's 2.35 in the afternoon, so these girls get away. An hour later, or not even an hour later, three p.m. Thora Campbell and her friends are walking to a football game that will be played between Campbell Union High School—that's where the girls go to school—and Washington High of Centerville. Now, Thora is twenty days short of her fifteenth birthday. Brown hair, blue eyes, five foot two, and weighs one hundred and twenty pounds. It's brown curly hair, I should say, and like ringlets—I think you called it back in the day—wearing a gabardine coat a blue sweater, a white blouse, a red skirt, and just like your friends, and this is an important point, you don't want to miss this, she's also wearing two pair of overlapping bobby
0: socks. Why is she wearing two pairs of socks, uh, in essence, four socks?
1: It's the school colors. Blue and red are their school colors, and this is what all the girls are wearing today.
0: So it's not one pair of socks with the colors on it. To get the colors, they have a blue pair pair. She's wearing four socks, two two socks on each foot,
1: and um, and they're the school colors, and she's wearing tan loafers.
0: And where is where is the group headed?
1: They're walking to the game. It's the game. 3 p.m., class is out, and they are walking to the game. The JV game, I think, begins at about 5.30, and then the the varsity game will be played after that. So they're going there, and they've got a uh, cowbell, you know, so they're going to play with a cowbell, And they've got their school books. She has her textbooks, which is another important point, a zippered binder and a cowbell to ring in support of the Campbell Union team. And so they're walking, and they're in front of Campbell Union High right now. And guess what? A blue Plymouth sedan pulls up alongside the girls on Winchester Boulevard. Two of her friends, Elaine Smicki, I think her name is pronounced, and Catherine Dan. they're 15, both have blonde hair, both have green eyes. They see the car, the blue Plymouth sedan. Elaine and Catherine think it looks like just, they will say later, it looks like one of those cars out of the gangster movies they see in the movies. Okay, just right out of there. So he's driving a 42 Plymouth um, blue sedan. There's one thing unusual, though. The car is creeping up alongside Thora and her friends. And when the girls stop walking, the car stops driving. Another of the older friends, a girl named Rita, who was 17 uh, you know, Thora looks to her for advice on what to do next. None of the other girls say anything. So Thora walks up to the car. The guy rolls down the window, and guess what he's wearing? The white London Dairy T-shirt. It, that's our man. And uh, he says, hi. And she goes, hi, yourself. And again, she feels like she's in a movie. Okay, this is like a movie. Now, she's 14. will be 15 in about, you know, a couple of weeks. This guy's got thick, black, wavy hair stands about 6'3". He's got this like cocky smile on his face all the time. I'm you something about our man here. Women love him. Unfortunately, they just do. And you'll find out later in this story how much women love this guy. Unfortunately for them, he doesn't like women. He likes girls. He likes teenage girls. The younger, the better. This guy's a pedophile. But, and so he's got, as I write, a quick, easy kind of goofy smile. That's how the girls described him, okay? And he's got the clothes on that were stolen, so we know it's our man. He offers her five bucks. Five dollars in 1945 went a long way. Offers her five dollars to babysit his sister's kids so that he and his sister can go off and do something, And but she'll get five bucks. She looks to her friends. he says, I'll have you back by halftime. She tells him about the football game. I will have you back here by halftime. That's a promise. Well, she gets in the car, grabs the five out of his hand, and they take off. They drop the Plymouth. He drops the Plymouth into first, pulls away with Thora, laughing and waving to her friends, and she yells out the window, the last thing she yells out to them, don't forget to save me a seat. I'll see you soon.
0: And we, again, and, and we go f- forward, we don't have to go too far forward when um, she, the next time she is seen, uh, uh, not by friends, but by a woman at the roadside at her uh, mailbox, and this woman sees a car, the Blue Plymouth, go speeding by, and what does the woman, because they almost, he, she almost gets hit because she's by the road, so she's obviously, her attention to the car. What does she see?
1: She sees a uh, Young girl, 14 years old, brown hair, ringlets, her face pressed against the passenger window, screaming for help. And Ella will tell the police, this woman, Ella Boudot, will tell the police later that she has never seen such fear as she saw on that girl's face in that car driving by.
0: And then we can, again, assume, because no one else has come forward through the story of the book, uh, to see her later. That's the last time anybody except the driver of the car.
1: Yeah, Frank and Lois Chamberlain are her parents, father and mother, respectively. And the uh, the, the girl, her friends, obviously, she doesn't come to the football game. Her friends know something's wrong, but they're teenagers. What are they going to do? They go back to the football game and they live life, right? Well, it's 530. That's when they have dinner at the Chamberlain house. And Thora's not home. Now, Thora's a good kid. Thora never does anything wrong. And so they know when she doesn't walk in that door at 5.30, something's wrong. Well, two, But they know she's at the football game, too, and she's with friends. So they're not too worried. But two hours later, at 7.30 at night, the food is in the tin foil, wrapped up and saved for her. Dinner is saved for her. At 7.30, Frank, her father, is reading his newspaper in the living room. And Lois, the wife, says, I'm worried about Thora. Have you tried calling her friends? Frank says. That's what she she gets the phone on the wall. of course, it's a phone on the kitchen wall. And she starts calling friends of Thora's and she under, she learns then that a car pulled up that Thora got in the car, and that's the last time she was ever seen by her friends. Then Lois slams the phone receiver back up on the holder hard enough to be heard by her husband, and she runs into the living room. He crumples the newspaper more than folds it, tosses it aside. They get the neighbors and Frank and Lois and the neighbors start walking the streets of their neighborhood and then all through Campbell, California, calling out Thora's name, looking for Thora.
0: So how quickly were they able to involve the police? The police got involved rather
1: quickly in a day or two you know there was none of this 48hour stuff they knew something was wrong right away and see Frank Campbell is a pretty well-to-do contractor He's a, he builds he's a developer I should say rather than a contractor He's a housing developer and back in that day in 45 not only were you trying to get a car you were trying to get a house back in those days. They were building and in a town like Campbell with lots of farm area to be sold and bought, bought and sold. Man, I tell you what, if you could build houses, if your company was building houses, you were golden. And he was golden in this town. So this whole, and he's just a nice guy. People just like this guy. So they rallied to him. The cops started looking. Everybody, night after night, they really were looking for Thora through the streets of Campbell and, you know, the surrounding area.
0: And it doesn't take long based on you've got witnesses. It's not someone is vanished and maybe they ran away that clearly it was an abduction. So uh, soon the FBI becomes involved because technically, even without a body, it's a kidnapping. So now, which is great for many reasons and Mm -hmm. also for the resolution at the end, um, the federal uh, uh, statutes of kidnapping, especially if they can and we'll talk about that later murder it then can come become a capital case. I don't was was California capital at that point or do Oh uh, yeah well, it
1: was definitely. okay
0: so state yeah. or state or federal doesn't mean but right. the FBI does become involved fairly quickly, right?
1: right under the Lindbergh Law. Remember, it would shoot the child, right? And this goes back to the, uh, the Lindbergh, uh, baby kidnapping. So because of the Lindbergh law, it didn't have the kidnapping did not have to cross state lines like it would with an older person. So the FBI gets in right away and they put a guy on the case called E.G. or E.J. Connolly. Now, this guy's a character in himself, okay? There's nothing but characters in this story, I swear to you. There's nothing but characters. E.J. was one of the guys who brought down John Dillinger outside the movie theater in Chicago, okay? But after that, he became a kidnapping case expert. He solved some of the weird—and back in the 30s and 40s, kidnapping was really a revenue stream for gangsters. If you ran out of money, you kidnapped somebody. You didn't have to hurt them. All you did, you know, you pick, you know, just whoop, whoop, pick somebody out and you get the money and that's done, you know. So that's what they did. And so EJ, now he was so good in the FBI that J. Edgar Hoover let him have a mustache. That's what a big deal E.J. was. He had a little pencil mustache. E- Earl E.J. Connolly, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, in the Army as a private in 1917. He was in France, which is a big deal. Two years later, first lieutenant out of the Army. He gets into the—he's an accountant, of course. All the FBI guys in the beginning stages are lawyers or accountants, and he's an accountant. And he's just a little whippet of a guy. Okay, he's just a whip it as much as his little pencil mustache is, but he's very, very good at what he does. So Hoover, who hated facial hair, lets him have his never complains about his little pencil thin mustache
0: um and they they come upon and you you can throw out his name when you wish they come across uh pretty quickly a someone of of interest let's play yeah it. And how did, I forget how they came to that uh well, the
1: top cop in San Mateo California a guy by the name of Robert Emmett O'Brien one of these guys with no necks okay he his his Personality and his physique were exactly opposite to E.J. Connell. He's a big bull of a guy. You could hit this guy with a table and the table would cry. That's what kind of a guy this guy was. Now, uh, Robert Emmett O'Brien, he knows right away what's going on because news of Thora has gotten to San Mateo, which is right by Campbell. Campbell is, we would call a suburb of San Mateo these days. And so he knows about it and he's got a guy in mind. And this is a guy by the name of Thomas McMonagall. And he talks to E.J. about him. First day in town, E.J. goes to... And these guys, this is local and federal law. And just like today, they don't like each other. All right? They don't like each other. But E.J. sits down and talks to him, never expects anything to come out of this. But um, O'Brien is ready for him. And he's got the photo and everything. And he says, here's what I think about this guy. Number one, McMonagall was a bus driver. He loved to take teenage girls and the teenage girls they were he was always trying to pick up the girls and so many times the girls actually formed a thomas McMonagall fan club amongst themselves because they thought this guy was just a joke of laugh they would set him up for a date and then say tell him to meet them at an intersection for instance at night and they would sit behind the bushes and laugh while he waited alone under a streetlight for a girl to show up they just thought he was ridiculous um uh, so but he, so, he, so O'Brien knows about that. Chief O'Brien knows about that. But more importantly, Chief O'Brien's got a teenage girl who swears that McMonagall raped her. Parents did not take it to court because they did not want to have to put the girl on the witness stand, okay? And remember, rape was treated a lot differently back in 1945 than it is in this century. And so they did not want to put that girl on the stand. The parents didn't, but O'Brien knew in his heart of hearts That Thomas McMonagle was the one who raped that girl. Now, you got to remember the girls might have thought he was ridiculous, but McMonagle actually is a former pro boxer, too. When he was a teenager, he was a professional boxer. Six foot three, he's built with muscle. The way he walks is just like that Panther kind of athletic stride that a guy has. And um, so he's not anybody to be fooled with either, even though these girls considered him to be a joke. But, uh, you know, this and the girl, she too was 14. Same age as Thora. So now we've got and our suspect so, number So one, yeah. Thomas so they McMahon. now
0: they're able to get again quickly they get a picture, of course, because there was well, they have a picture because he's he's done some small petty crimes or something. Right? Yeah, so and he, he punched out
1: a, his he punched he punched out his boss. He, he punched his that'll boss do it. At, at the bus company. Because, that'll do it. He, because he didn't get a promotion and he figured that happened didn't happen because everybody was against him. They were always been against him, Thomas said. And his wife will tell the story too. He always figured everybody was against him his whole life. And he punched out his boss. And that got him on um, an assault charge.
0: So that gets the picture. So now they can they can again get him his background. So they're now I don't remember which in which order, but they of course go to where he's supposed to be working, a construction you know, yeah. site. And they also go and t- obviously talk to his wife. Well he, here's what
1: happened. He goes back to work. He takes five days off after kidnapping Thora. He's gone for five days. Nobody's seen him, not his wife, nobody. Then five days later, he shows up at Blair Construction in Campbell, near Campbell, California. Excuse me. And so then the guys say, where were you? And he says, I was with a 15-year-old girl, and man, she was a cookie. Then the next day, he tells his boss, you know what we need? We need kind of a bridge built over that ditch over there. We need some work done over there, and I'll do it on my own time. The boss says, wow, I can't believe it. This guy's doing this. Okay, you go ahead and work over there. That's an important thing, okay? That'll come up later. And then, yeah, then he goes home. He shows up to his wife, and they had a baby just born in October. So, um, so, But then he says to his wife, Enoch, uh, he says, hey, you know what? It was a great dinner. Thanks so much. But I have to go to Los Angeles. Here are the keys to the blue Plymouth sedan. You can have that. And I'm out of here. And he goes down to um the bus station. Well, in the meantime, the FBI is on to him. The FBI goes back to the construction yard and they well, first they go to his house and miss him just by hours. And he's going. He, they know he's at the bus stop. So a couple of them go down to the bus stop. The next day, the others go out to the construction yard, and they're doing the sweaty, dirty work of going through the construction yard and talking to these construction workers who like them less than anybody. So that's another little conflict in the story. But then they know the guy's going to L.A., and they know, too, that he has family in Alton, Illinois, or near Alton, Illinois. So they figure he's heading that way. So then another carload of FBI—and they then EJ calls other FBI offices, other special agents in charge— Let's them know what's going on, because you have to remember, they believe Thora is still alive. What so They're hoping, best case, even better than arresting uh, Thomas McMonagle, best case will be somehow finding Thora alive. And he will, they hope, take them to her. So they're, you know, following him. They just don't go out and arrest him. They want to, you know, follow him and hopefully. So they go to Alton, Illinois, spends, this is around Thanksgiving now. Spending time with his family and blah, blah, blah you know, with the, you know, bumps at his dad's house and goes to his sister's house. And then he gets back on the road. But this time he doesn't take a bus. This time he starts hitchhiking. So.
0: Now, what's what again and I, I keep <laughs> pointing this out, people have got to read this book because you won't believe it. OK, even as we're recounting it, that what they decide to do, the FBI and all the authorities is they're not going to arrest him. They've, I'm assuming they probably have enough circumstantial evidence and the witnesses, the young ladies and whatnot, that they can go ahead with this. But they decide to shadow him. Right. Set up. And there's some comical elements here about, you know, you can't wear the, the G-man suit and whatever and pretend that you're, I don't know, you know, bums on the road. Yeah. So right. they figure they're going to do their best with with multiple cars and all this stuff they are going to shadow him, and so they shadow him all the way back to California.
1: Not only do they shadow him, but they give him a ride. There was at one point he he was like you know the thing is now one time he gets into a taxi he's got no money so he pulls off this great scam. There's a guy sharing the cab with him. He goes, "Hey, wait a minute, can you pull over there so I can make a phone call?" Sure. He gets out of the cab and takes off and leaves this guy with the full fare in the cab. Okay. Then he just runs into another cab. And gets into another cab so the fbi agents are going holy moly what's going on here and so they're following him again then but he doesn't have no money so he get he tells the cab driver like you know kind of in the desert he says i have no money the cab driver goes to punch him and of course mcmoneagle's a boxer so he just dives and weaves and gets away from him and so but then he's left with his suitcase a beat-up old suitcase on the road kind of in the desert and no so the fbi agents give him a ride they pull up. They were behind the taxi the whole way. And so the FBI agents stop and say, hey, you need a lift? Yeah, sure. And so they go to the next town, and he gets out. And then he goes into the bar and says, don't those guys think I know what a federal cop looks like? He knew they were FBI agents the whole time. So this, I mean, if you were going to do it. I have got to somehow get in, in a hold of Netflix because this is the best six-episode Netflix show you've ever seen. So he knows all along that the cops are after him.
0: It's ludicrous because, again, at one point, again I'm I I have no there may not be chronological stuff came down I wrote it down that at one point I think he like gets into a motel and then they search the motel and they find the gun yeah. it, am I remembering that right Isn't right part yeah. of this chase
1: yeah 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 and the YMCA where he stayed in a motel YMCA. and they're, they're finding little bits of evidence every place they go he's leaving evidence all over the place because he's just not very bright. You know, and he's. And we should
0: everybody. mention here that the reason that a gun is important, we still don't have a body, right? Um, is that there? There's a. There's a uh, when they're at the house, uh, they find a bullet uh, lodged in in the in the you know uh, whatever you call it the frame of the car inside. Yeah. So they're and they, obviously they get a bullet out, uh, so they they know that they're looking for a .32 uh, mm-hmm. gun.
1: He gets on a bus at one point to get back into L.A. He also takes an overdose of sleeping pills. He's trying to commit suicide on the bus, okay? Because again, he's a bad guy, but he knows what he's done at the same time, and so he's trying to commit suicide. So, base and there's still an undercover FBI guy on the bus, and he doesn't see him taking pills. So they everybody gets off the bus except McMonagle, and the bus driver has to pick him up and carry him off the bus and pretty much carry him into the arms of E.J. Connolly and the other FBI agents. Who are, uh, who are
0: waiting for him. So and that's how what's him. the, what you have to do? You got, well, I guess we got to take him to the hospital. Yeah, right. So
1: they take him to the hospital and pump,
0: stomach
1: and pump his stomach. Yeah. And finally they get a chance to talk to him. And then this begins the ballet, the dance between Thomas McMonigle and EJ Connolly on uh, Did You Do It? I Didn't Do It. I Did Do It. Here's How I Did It. Da 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 da.
0: What are some of the, the, the um, uh, stories he gives of his, his encounter with Thora? She ran. She tried to run. And first off, she screamed,
1: and I shot her. And the bullet went through her and into the car, the one you were talking about, the bullet they pulled out of the car. Okay, that's how they knew about that. And then another story was she ran away, and I never saw her again. But the first story was I shot her and then I threw her off Devil's Slide. Devil's Slide is this incredibly... I don't know if you remember a year ago that a guy drove his car off a cliff into the Pacific Ocean trying to kill himself and the, his family. That's Devil's Slide. Okay, That is where this happened. And it's an incredible drop of like 800 feet down into the Pacific Ocean. And it's down in this incredible riptide whirlpool kind of a thing. And so he says that he threw, he shot Thora and threw her body off Devil's Slide. So that's the first place they go, is Devil's Slide. EJ sends a couple of his top men out and they find a sock, a blue sock, and then they find a red sock. So they're thinking, this is it. They call, but they, they don't see a body anywhere there. They know it's got to be in the water if it's there. They call Navy divers, scuba divers, just back from World War II, And these guys, now the currents are so bad that one of these guys, one of the divers, gets knocked unconscious. The waves throw the tide, throw him up against a cliff, and he's knocked unconscious. They pull him out, there's blood pouring down his head. And the lead lead driver, the chief of this crew, says, Look, if there's a body down there, it's gone. It's pieces. Okay. I mean, my men can't swim down there. There's no way. So, anyway, okay. But then they get back to McMonagall. And he starts doing other stories. No, I didn't throw her down there. She ran away. She ran away. And I don't know what happened to her. You know? So, you know, it comes up with all these different stories.
0: And eventually, like I said, that this is a, a kind of a, a very fascinating uh, end of the story. When we get there, we'll describe it. But they they uh, figure, they obviously, they've got a probable cause. And I'm assuming they uh, go to the uh, grand jury and all that. And they get an indictment for um assuming capital murder mm-hmm. right and so now we begin and again uh it you think okay it's over he's not going to speak at the trial he's going to you know and it's you'll get defense attorneys they'll do this and that and there'll be a verdict but oh no he's going to have some more he's going to have some outings so yeah. tell us tell us a little bit about his outings
1: okay well now we, now we should mention this that we we have a junk dealer by the name of, Oh, Hogmeyer. I'm sorry.
0: Yes, we cannot yeah, forget right, my favorite right, character, right. Mr. Franklin Hogmeyer. Franklin
1: Hogmeyer, who's like out of the, you know,
0: like he was to the, before the we, Wizard before Harry we Potter get story. there, so we keep it in a timeline. Yeah, wh- as you get into it, at what point is he? Uh, is trial started, or is he still just arrested? Yeah, no, the, the trial is started. The trial is in process. Okay, now started. and one thing I
1: wanted no. to point out too is women love McMonigle so much across the nation that they literally at one of the courthouse dates they literally broke down the doors to get in to get a front row seat the reporter wrote the next day he wrote it was like they were having a nylon sale so anyway, but yeah, so we're talking about Franklin Hogmeyer. Now, he's a junk dealer, and he and his wife live in this little apartment building, you know, and not much. Of it. So he wants to go. She's kind of sick of living in the apartment building, and he wants to get away from her. So he goes down looking for junk. Guess what he finds? A dead body, a woman's body. He finds a woman's body. So they go back and call the cops. The cops get the FBI, and the FBI says, hey, Thomas, now, he's in San Quentin, okay, now, this is another big thing. He's in San Quentin, and the reason he's not in county jail is the county jail people can't be sure of being able to keep him safe.
0: And this is because 12 years prior, um, Thomas Thurman and John Holmes were raiding trial for the murder of Brooke Hart, housed in the same jail under the protection of the same sheriff, Emig. And uh, what happened to them?
1: The town... Broke in to the jail, dragged the guys out. Now, it's not just the town that did it. A Los Angeles radio station broadcast. We need to lynch these guys. A public, I mean, a radio station, a commercial radio. And I come from radio. This is ninth. They broke in and they grabbed the guy out and lynched him in a public park. And that radio station, they broadcast it live. They broadcast the lynching live and I document this all. If you look at my bibliography at the end of the book, you'll see where I got all this stuff from. I mean, I can document this actually happened and I saw the newspaper reports and hmm, it's a great story. So anyway, this why he's in San Quentin. Okay. He wants to get out of San. That's why he's in San Quentin. They can't keep him safe in the County jail. So anyway, he wants to get out of San Quentin, not a nice place to be. He, he hears about this body. He goes, Yeah, that's her. That woman's body. I think that might be her. So, they go down there and you look at the body. Uh, no, that's the woman. I killed her, but that's not Thora. It's the body of a woman, a waitress, kind of a waitress, part-time hooker. And she's a black woman. Now, to me, this is a really important part of this story. Is uh, McMonagle Thomas says that he did kill her. They got into an argument. He had a gun. She had a knife and he killed her. Are they going to prosecute? They never prosecute him for this. They say because they've got the Thora case. And so they never, he's never prosecuted for this. And I'm convinced after reading the newspaper reports, the reason they didn't prosecute is because he's a black woman and probably a prostitute. So anyway, he says, no, that's not her. Uh, you know, that's somebody else I killed, but it's not her. Okay, so that's it. So then Fogmeyer <laughs> and his wife decided to go back out and look for more junk. But she is not going to sit in that room. So he gives her a bottle of whiskey, four roses, and they sit up. She sits in the car while he's down there doing his thing, okay? Well, he gets back up to the car, Hogmeyer, and the wife is gone. Where is she? Where could she be? So what is he going to do? He goes home to take a nap. And then when he wakes up from the nap, then he calls the police and says, Hey, guess what? My wife is gone. So anyway, they look around for her and they're thinking, Oh, brother, what they find her. She had fallen off the cliff and she got drunk.
0: A different it, cliff, though.
1: Yeah, a different cliff and she <laughs> fell off and boom, she's dead. And so they figure, no, Hogmeyer didn't do this one, but, uh, you know, or and McMonville didn't do it. Just one of those things.
0: And and so, again, so we've got the body. We've got a real body, but it's not the body yeah. we want. So he he does go on trial. So, so more stories come out. And I believe this was kind of interesting in a trial. He did, I guess, testify on the stand about something that they wanted under oath, like you're going to trust him. But it was they couldn't ask him questions about did you do it or something. It had something to do with just some general uh, that gun, you know, he was persistent. not disputing.
1: Yeah, purchasing that gun, the thirty-two caliber gun. They found the guy who sold it to him or traded it to him. And so he was going to testify on that. Then at one point, he did say that he was ready to confess to the whole thing. And he would do that after lunch. Well, there was something about lunch that changed his mind. And he was going to take them out again. If I can get out of San Quentin, I'm going to get out of San Quentin. OK, he was going to take them and a whole convoy out and show them on the side of the road where he left Thora's body. Well, guess what? There was no body there. So then they go back to the courthouse and they're all over. And then another time he says, I'm going to confess to everything and I'll take you out. But they said, you know what? You can't guarantee my safety. So I am not going to do this. And I am not. Like he said, I will not confess. And da, 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 da. So there you go.
0: So that so somewhere near the end, eventually the judges had enough of it and it gets turned. Oh, I'm being facetious. The defense has their turn and all that. And it gets turned over to the to the jury. And how long did that? uh,
1: They're out for lunch, basically. They go out for lunch, basically, and they come back with a conviction. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens during the trial, too where McMonagall falls asleep in the middle of the trial. Another time he's spinning a bullet around and it just like falls off. I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. It's all
0: in the book, folks. It's all in the book.
1: And it's just packed. Courtrooms always packed. People are passing out from the heat, you know, because people always dressed up for that kind of stuff back in the day
0: he is the, and he is uh not convicted i'm not sure in that day was it uh by the conviction it was automatic or did he they have to then have a penalty phase yeah, the penalty
1: phase, and yeah it was death yeah Basically, and they yeah. still
0: they handed him death right um, and one of the things i do want to point out here i did research you i'm sure did a lot of research and i could not find anywhere it's got to be at least one more where someone was executed when there was no body. people have been convicted and and sentenced to life and sentenced to 10 life sentences mm-hmm. and there's a list of them on google list of from back to the 1800s through 2015 of eight or nine people each and they tell the little story of the crime and ends said nobody 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 was anyone ever executed without a body
1: i don't think so very few especially back in the day now i ha- exit you know life in prison yeah But executed, no. I think you would have a tough time coming up with anyone executed for not having a body. Back in the day, remember, I mean, if you look at my book, The Day Eva Duggan Died, you know, back in the day, if a sheriff got you and was convinced you, you'd be hung right there.
0: So he does get uh, uh, executed. Now, and again, modern times and law and order and all that, you know, there's 16,000 years of appeals how long before, between the, the sentence and the uh, execution?
1: Oh man, they kill him quick. Back in those days, they killed him quick. It's like 1947, he's dead. Okay, this is 46, the trial. And uh, gosh, I think he was executed in 1940, late 47. But remember, before they execute him, he tries to donate his eyes to a 15-year-old girl, a blind girl. She, he tries to donate, and again, but she said no. I cannot imagine going through life, looking at life through a dead man's eyes. So again, he is rejected by a 15-year-old girl.
0: And he, while he's in jail, he's writing briefs and he's, yeah. uh, you know, being a, co- a consultant to the other inmates for their legal things. So even though it's not a long time that you hear these people becoming jailhouse lawyers after 15, 20 years mm-hmm. on death row, uh, like I said, it was pretty quick for him.
1: Yeah. And he, he's convinced he can appeal his case because there's no body found. So he's going to appeal it himself. But then, but that fails. But then a scientist emerges. We've got a scientist coming on the scene who says, you know what? I have brought cats and dogs back from the dead. I'll bet that I could bring him back from the dead. And, you know, he actually made this pitch to several wardens and other murder cases and was never able to do it. But he says, yeah, I'm going to bring him back from the dead. And McManable hears about him and says, hey, could we talk to this guy? And they're actually talking seriously about, can you bring him back from the dead? Now, here's the problem. If you bring a convicted killer who's been sentenced to death back from the dead, do you have to let him go? Because he has been killed. He has been executed. So his sentence was served if he comes back from the dead. Or do you have to kill him again?
0: And the answer, the answer of people doing the research on the law is what?
1: The, well, the San Quentin warden settled it. He said, I don't give a damn. I don't want some mad scientist. But,
0: but, but, up- but, 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 but if, if it had been successful, yeah, the law says you got to kill him again.
1: Yeah, right. You got to kill him again. So anyway, the warden says, when well, the warden settles it, he says, I don't want some, you know, crazy mad scientist setting up a laboratory in my basement. So it doesn't happen. And, you know, it could not have happened anyway because they executed him with cyanide. They put him in the gas chamber. And I put a real good, I think, description of what it's like to sit in that chair and have those cyanide tablets. Listen to those cyanide tablets rolling, rolling down and hitting the bucket of water right under your chair. I mean, this is not high technology, friends. And then, you know, the gas comes up, but they could not clean the uh, uh, the uh chamber out for the scientists to get in there and pull the body out.
0: And so he's gone and finished. And and of course, uh, I would assume that somewhere along the line, I don't know if during the trial or that, I'm, I'm guessing, was it one of these things where their parents felt they'd still find her? She'd turn up or went, did either or both of the parents sort of say
1: it's- That was it. They figured, you know, Frank and Lois, they never talked to a reporter again after that. The, every time Everything was no comment, no comment. But the search for her stopped. Now, I will say there is an organization called Charlie's Project, and that's really what tipped me off to this story. Charlie's Project is an organization that lists every single person missing. I mean, we're talking thousands of them. And that's right. where I picked out Thor's name and just happened to come upon the story. And then I get into newspapers.com and really found out all this stuff that you know goes along with the story. And we should say, too, he was executed. Uh, only a priest coined the body. Nobody else wanted the body. A cheap wooden casket, and, um, you know, he was buried. And they talked to Ina, his wife, who appears several times in the story, and she said, well, maybe this is all for the best. Let's not forget about the note that Thomas passed to the warden on his way to the gas chamber. I, Thomas Henry McMonigle, in this last testimony to the people declare that I did not shoot Thora Chamberlain, and I did not throw her body over a cliff. I never made any confession, and again, earlier in the book, he claims in the court that he was actually, the confession was beaten out of him. Or then they said, he another one was he claimed, they they said they would make him a hero if he confessed, and they would actually build a statue to him because, uh, yeah. So I never made any confession that I shot Thora Chamberlain in Santa Cruz County. And so the warden refolds the paper, Duffy is the warden's name, he refolds the paper and wonders, did we convict the wrong man? Duffy's aide, he looks at Duffy's aide and passes the note to him, and he said, who had read the note as well, and he says, no, we got the right man. McMoneagle might say he didn't shoot Thorin Chamberlain and toss his body off a cliff, but he never says that he did not kill the girl. After all the stories McMonagall crafted about what happened, how are we going to believe this one? And with that, Duffy crumples the note and tosses it to the aid for disposal. The paper that held Thomas Henry McMonagall's last words would soon be ashes.
0: Well, I'm exhausted. Uh, This has been an, uh, an incredible story. And I wouldn't, as you say, um, you are? Are you working on this for Netflix or? Uh...
1: No, I'm not. But boy, I'd like to ah. if I could get in there. Wouldn't you? know, the writers and actors are on strike now. Anyway, that's right.
0: So. That's right. Yeah, and I have. I should friends. talk to Netflix
1: while they've got some downtime. I'd be willing to be a scab.
0: I've got several friends. I got several friends who are both in both unions. Um, uh, well, Rod, I couldn't let you go uh, without you telling my listeners what you're working on uh, now. What's coming up?
1: Uh, I am working on a new book called The Falzone Murders. And this is one that happened in October, uh, I'm sorry, December, 1929. Uh, three members of the, Pel- I'm really getting into historical true mm-hmm. crime. Uh, three children were killed by a bomb. Three children in the John, the Joseph Pelzon family in Brooklyn. They're Sicilian immigrants. They go down and he's a building uh, marble contractor. You know, he had the marble business uh, and they go downstairs. And this is December, 1929. There's a Christmas present on the kitchen table. Uh, ornately wrapped a big beautiful box these kids now 15 year old mary is in her communion dress it's sunday morning and she's going to her first communion her 12 year old brother and her eight year old sister are there as well two other siblings and the mother are off in another part of the big house they pull the ribbon and boom the huge incredible explosion it wrecks the kitchen it blows out windows in neighboring homes in brooklyn uh, the three kids are, it was a bomb wrapped with, uh, steel slugs. The kid, the three children are ripped to shreds, literally. One kid makes it to an ambulance, but you know, back in 29, the ambulances were not, you know, come on. So anyway, they investigate what's happening. And it turns out they think the head of the Sicilian mob, and guess what this guy, they think the Black Hand organization did it. Now, remember Godfather 2? The black hand, that guy. Now, and guess what? The Sicilian mob leader, guess what he did for a living? He ran an olive oil importing business. Can anybody say Vito Carleone?
0: And we'll leave it there, folks. No, no, no more. No, more. Okay. no, they got to buy it. No, no, yeah, no. Well, no. it's not out yet, but I'm working on it. All right. Well, that's fine. I'm working on that's it. Yeah. We both yeah. hope we're going to yeah. be around here a little bit, a little bit longer. Right. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank my guest today, Rod Cackley. And the book today is The Murder of Thora Chamberlain. Just go to now. You have a website, or you just just. Google I do have it. a website, yeah. Yep, but the, which is yep, rodcackley.com com. I not find creative, it
1: but it works not creative, But yeah, but you
0: go works. to Amazon and put your name in, and yep. and and you go to you go to your local library. That's why I picked yep. up uh, the a lot of the books. And again, you know, there's a potpourri there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your name because you have the quickies uh, again a book with several yeah. chapters each one a different uh more bizarre than the next mm-hmm. you know, this one was a full-length book of one case and you have tell us a little bit again a little bit about the isadora uh uh group oh the saint Isidore. saint Isidore, saint Isidore.
1: yeah saint Isidore collection uh the town of saint Isidore is a weird little town i call it the most dysfunctional town on the planet it is surrounded by or maybe inside is the suicide forest. And this is where the world goes to kill each other and kill themselves. And there are all kinds of stories to spin off of that. And As a matter of fact, I'm working on a new one there called Heist and Heartbreak. Now, Chase.
0: Didn't you tell me in an, in, in an earlier podcast that there is really some place called uh suicide forest did you make that up
1: yeah no I, I did make it up but then i found out that in japan there's an island where it's the suicide forest japan and that right. is exactly what it happens and there's a bridge in china where so many people jump off the bridge to kill themselves they actually have uh, a federal or you know psychologists right. psychologists on the bridge to try to talk people out of jumping off the bridge But yeah, and the suicide forest in St. Isidore, they actually set it up as a business, too, where, you know, when you play hangman in St. Isidore, you're playing for real.
0: Well, thanks again, Rod, uh, for coming by and uh, chatting with us for a while. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to thank you folks for kindly tuning in for another episode of Murder Most Foul. If you liked what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends. Information about the podcast and an email link that can get a message to me can be found at the podcast's website, the address being www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So, until we meet again, stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. (music)